Tonight on Sci-Fi Saturday Night, cooking with the Daleks. Enjoy the recipe that will exterminate your species. We will begin a mass invasion. We will tell your people to surrender now and avoid war. It is now time for us to put Earth under our rule. It's your sacred duty to tell us the truth. Confess, confess that you've been guilty of witchcraft. You expect me to believe that you can overrun the entire world? We cannot be defeated. We have never been defeated. That is the message to your people. Yeah, they're dead. They're all messed up. Five by Saturday <laughs> night. If you're listening live from Tegucigalpa, the, the real question would be why? From our virtual habitat and pseudo-studio deep in the underground living quarters, we're proud to present Summer is Over, a Weather Channel retrospective of a schmuck reciting depredators for the past 12 months in Area 51. Welcome to TalkCast 288, this week's edition of Sci-Fi Saturday Night. Enjoying a mild headache from a heat wave that just won't quit, I am the Dome. Joining the talk cast tonight, uh, a different gang of five, missing one, replacing with another. In the Revere Time Vortex, our technical anarchist, the woman who just enjoys pushing people's virtual buttons, our own girl genius, Kriana, who we may not hear from much tonight. Yeah. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> from the stacks of her personal space in the Dank Dungeons Log Cabin Clone Garden, this week featuring salted peanuts because the gift shop was bare, it's the Zombrarian. Who forgot I, I just, remember no, to I, I'm just I'm so confused by salted peanuts and what? Okay. Not, <laughs> not not to worry about it. No, Back no, this is nothing to do with me. This is you not making any sense. Okay, and that would be different how. Usually I don't pay attention while you're not making sense. <laughs> Back from his Pixar internship, our returning correspondent, having spent 14 months incognito at the Institute of Secret Happiness, master of the Segway, minor of the 49ers, it's Awake by Java. Mmm, spaghetti. And fresh from her mausoleum, finishing her run in the New Hampshire premiere of American Idiot, our segment producer Drew joins us tonight. How you doing? My fingers are bleeding from the cello, but it's all right. <laughs> <laughs> Normally, we would uh, introduce our guest and do the news, but instead we're going to introduce our guest and talk to our guest now. Uh, our guest tonight is uh, somebody who I met a while back uh, on email because we kept missing each other at different events. Our guest tonight is Vivek Tawari. God, I hope I did your name right. Vivek, welcome <laughs> to the show. Thanks. It's great to be here. Uh, Vivek? We met at, at, we tried to meet up at Northeast Comic Con, otherwise known as Gary's uh, Circus of Insanity. Indeed. <clears throat> but uh, I kept missing him, he kept missing me, and then we just started emailing each other and saying, we need to be on the show. And, and the reason we, we wanted you on the show was to talk about the graphic, no the project, The Fifth Beetle, The Brian Epstein's, Epstein Story which grew from uh, a graphic novel 
to an Eisner award-winning best reality-based work to a movie. Yeah. And, yeah, thank and, you. And then as, as we, I began to delve a little further into your career, I, I kind of realized I, I had a Broadway producer on the show, <laughs> which, which I didn't realize at the time. And then Drew ended up uh, being in the New Hampshire premiere of American Idiot, which is, in fact, your show. Indeed. Very, very proud of that show. Uh, and actually, the night we went to go see Drew in the show, there was a, a marriage proposal on stage at the Encore. Oh, no kidding. Amongst the cast? Two of the cast yeah. members? Oh, well, how lovely. Drew? I believe it was the sister of a cast member to her girlfriend. How cool. And the audience just went nuts. It was. It I'm was sure. That's fantastic. Wonderful, wonderful show. So uh, I, I, I love that that show is being performed all over the place now. It's really just it has a very special place in my heart. I mean, I, I'm proud of all the work I do, but I, I, you know, I grew up in New York going to see punk rock shows on my own at, at CBGB's, and, and my, um, my parents were great lovers of the arts, and they were taking me uptown to see uh, the fine arts at Broadway. And, you know, I grew up loving both, so being able to kind of bring those two interests together in American Idiot was just something I'm really proud of. And, you know, meeting people like you have been, been in, like, regional productions of it that I had nothing to do with. Um, <laughs> it's just, it's super exciting. It's just amazing to know we created this thing, and now it's, like, has a life of its own. It's, it's, it's very, very rewarding. So I'm, I'm really re very pleased to meet you, and thanks for being in my show. Yeah, well, you must have done something right, because we sold out over half the shows. Fantastic. So. Love to hear that. And even the ones that weren't sold out were very well attended. The night we were there, I don't think there was an empty seat in the house. That's awesome. It that would be the definition of sold out. Don't sold you? out. Thank you. <laughs> Good. Love it. Wow. You're going to go right for the juggler, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, it's it's kind of lovely, the, the respect they have for age around this place. But that's a whole other story. So talk to us a little bit about the Brian Epstein story, how that got started with you, and, and what brought you to the project. Yeah, so I, yeah, you know, I first discovered uh, Brian's story when I was in business school, so some 25 years ago. Um, I was a, a student at the Wharton School of Business, and, uh, you know, I, I, as I mentioned earlier, I grew up in New York City loving the arts, and that was what I wanted to do with my life. I wanted a career in the arts. I loved graphic novels. I loved film. I loved television. I loved Broadway. And that's what I wanted to do with myself. And I'm of Indian origin. Um, and young people of Indian origin who have some means and opportunity in their lives are, are not expected to write comic books and produce Broadway musicals. Oh, come on! Uh, you know, we are, um, we're expected to become doctors or engineers, um, maybe lawyers, you know, pursue some sort of profession. And, and uh, as a dad myself, I, I now I, I understand that you want your kids to have you know, stable careers, but, but those weren't my dreams. You know, I dreamed of a life in the arts, which is not as stable, but, but, in my, but it's, it's rewarding, it's, and it's what, what I loved. And, uh, you know, the Wharton School today has quite a number of resources for young people who are interested in the arts, but in, um, in 1991, when I enrolled, th there were no resources for people like me, and so I had to take it upon myself to, to, to study uh, the lives of great entertainment visionaries and, and, and gain inspiration, to find my old role, role models, if you will, if you will. And being a lifelong Beatles fan who believed that uh, the Beatles and 
their manager, Brian Epstein, kind of wrote and then rewrote the rules of the pop music business, um, I thought I should study the life of Brian Epstein. So that's kind of where it all began. And, you know, I'll be the first to admit that I got involved in that study wanting the business stories. You know, obviously I was a business student, so I wanted to know the business of the Beatles. But how did he get them a record deal when no one wanted to sign them? How did he convince Ed Sullivan to book them when a British band had never made an impact in the United States? How did he come up with the suits and the haircuts? And, you know, those are incredibly fascinating and inspiring stories, and they're all in my book. And, and, uh, and I was rewarded as I uncovered those stories with the blueprint that I was looking for. But ironically, what struck a really deep chord for me and why that story has stayed with me for 25 years um, actually has nothing to do with the Beatles. It was, it was uncovering the, the personal side of his story. And he was, in brief, he was gay and Jewish and from Liverpool. And in the 1960s, uh, those were three significant obstacles. You know, it was, I mean, it's, you know, it's putting it mildly, you know, it was against the law to be gay. It was literally a felony. Um, anti-Semitism was rampant in the country in a way that it isn't today. And Liverpool, prior to the Beatles, is a town that has no cultural influence whatsoever. So literally in Brian Epstein, you've got this gay Jewish kid. He was 26 years old, running around this dirty port town in the north of England, saying, I found a local rock and roll band who are going to be bigger than Elvis, who are going to elevate pop music into an art form. You know, and people laughed at him. They were like, that's, that's the silliest thing we've ever heard. They said, that dream is stupid, and people like you don't do things like that. And now, and while they I meant that, too. I mean, what's that? And they meant that. Totally. You totally, don't. 100%. Yeah. And, and I won't ever claim that I've had obstacles in my life like Brian had. I certainly, compared to Brian, I would say I've had a charmed life. But nevertheless, as a young Indian kid, you know, who found myself at the Wharton School of Business but didn't want to really go into strict business and didn't want to do the other things that are expected of me, like become a lawyer or, or an engineer or a doctor, you know, I could really find inspiration in that story of the gay Jewish kid from Liverpool who changed the world through music. You know, I was like, if he could do that, then why can't some scrawny Indian kid from New York's Lower East Side put a punk rock album on a Broadway stage and, and write a comic book, you know? And so, so that's why the Brian Epstein story has had such resonance for me. So, um, so there's a process now. You have the story, you understand the man, uh, and, and you begin to admire the obstacles he had to overcome to yeah. do the things that he actually did during that period prior to his death, uh, where, where does the graphic novel come? Where, where, where is the inspiration to say, that's how I want to tell that story? Yeah, so, you know, I, as I said, I started this research some 25 years ago when I was just a student. I wasn't writing screenplays or graphic novels or anything like that. I was just seeking personal inspiration. And, you know, there, there is a, a paltry amount of information readily available about Brian. And, you know, backtracking to 1991, um, there's no Wikipedia, there's no YouTube, there's no Google, you know, so there are none of these online resources that we kind of take for granted these days. And The Fifth Beetle is actually the only book in print about Brian Epstein. Um, to give credit where it's due, there's a wonderful book called The Man Who Made the Beatles by Ray Coleman that you can find quite easily now on Amazon Marketplace or Abe Books or any number of these used book websites. But in 1991, there, there are no used book websites. You know, so I had no choice but to do interviews, to track down people who knew Brian and ask them to talk to me. 
you know, cold call people like Sid Bernstein, the legendary concert promoter who brought mm-hmm. the Beatles over to the U.S. and and just say, hey, I'm a, I'm a student at the Wharton School and I'm looking for inspiration and the little bit I know about Brian has been inspiring and will you talk to me? And um, And I'm proud to say that not one of these people turned me down. You know, the way I describe it is I was so excited about reaching out to them that I forgot to be intimidated. And, um, and it was, it, I mean, uh, it, was, it was an incredible experience. And, and so, you know, I, as I said, I wasn't looking to do anything with this knowledge. I was just looking for inspiration. And Brian Epstein became what I describe as my historical mentor. You know, someone I never had the chance to meet. He died in 67 and I was born in 73. Um, but, uh, but I've studied his life meticulously um, to learn from him like you learn from a mentor. And um, it was about, you know, 15 years after I started my study, about 10 years ago, um, that, uh, that I'd, I had produced A Raisin in the Sun on Broadway, which I was incredibly proud of. It was the first time uh, an African-American had won Best Actress. Felicia Rashad won that year for, um, uh, for Best Actress, and, and I'm incredibly proud of that. Okay, and the we, show did... we, need to, we need to stop for a second. Yeah. Because you go to the Wharton Business School, you graduate from there, and then you make the transformation from... Uh, a business school graduate to a Broadway producer. Yeah. How does that happen? Yeah, I mean, so while I was in, in business school, I got a job as a Sony Music College marketing rep. I got my start in the music industry. Um, so I was working for Sony Music while I was still at school. And then um, from being a college rep, I became an alternative marketing rep, which was basically uh, same same idea. You were marketing their music to college radio stations, to um, independent record stores, um, and uh, and lifestyle accounts, skate shops, tattoo parlors, that sort of thing. And after I graduated, I moved back to New York, which is home, and I took a job working for Mercury Records, which was a division of Polygram at the time. And uh, a few years after that, the Seagram's Corporation bought Polygram, merged it with Universal, and budgets were frozen. Everyone was miserable. Um, and, you know, we were told job security is, uh, is at risk and you should look for another job. And I had always dreamed about starting my own company. So I thought, rather than look for another job, this is the moment where I'm going to do it. I'm going to dive in and start my own company. I called it Tawari Entertainment Group. I gave it that very vague name so that I could take on whatever projects I was interested in. Um, my background at the time was the music industry, but I knew I loved theater and film and comics, and I knew I eventually wanted to do all those other things. Um, being here in New York City, I sort of thought if I want to get involved in show business, you know, film, television, theater, uh, I should start with theater because I'm right here in New York and Broadway is my, in my backyard. And so I should start there and then eventually move on to, uh, or, or add, I should say, rather than move on, add film and TV to the mix. And so the first sort of theater project I worked on was um, a project to open a Broadway Hall of Fame. Now, while that ended up not uh, coming to pass, through that project, I met a great, it was a wonderful networking opportunity. I met a, a tremendous number of, uh, of major Broadway players, including some of the producers who became the lead producers of the producers, the producers of the producers, the Mel Brooks <laughs> musical. And, um, you know, I think they saw in me a promising future Broadway producer, and they invited me to join that show. And I did raise some money for it, so I did own, uh, you know, earn my place at the table, so to speak. Um, but more importantly, uh, they allowed me to attend meetings I probably shouldn't have been allowed to attend and join conference calls I probably shouldn't have been on. And, uh, and they treated me like mentors. And, and I basically, you know, probably part of why they allowed me was because I, I kept my mouth shut and I kept my eyes and ears open and I learned how to produce. 
And so that's kind of how I got into theater. And, and, and the producers, you know, if you follow Broadway, you'll know it became a tremendous success. So it was a great show to learn from. And then after that, some of them went on to do some of those, those producers went on to, um, to produce Hairspray. And so they invited me to join that show. And so I enjoy, I joined that show again, mostly in a financing capacity and I was still continuing to learn and that show did tremendously well. And so really at this point I had two successful shows under my belt, even though my role was tiny in them. And, uh, but I was off to the races as a producer. And shortly after that, I took on a raisin in the sun where I cast Sean Combs, you know, better known as P. Diddy as our male lead. And, um, and that show was, was a bit controversial at the time. Uh, everyone told me, you know, African-Americans don't come to Broadway. Kids don't come to Broadway. You're going to lose your shirt. You're crazy. Sean Combs can't act. He, he won't sell tickets. And, you know, I thought that was ludicrous. I thought if you give African-Americans and kids something they want to see and, uh, and let them know it's there, maybe they're not consuming traditional Broadway press, but, you know, give them something they want and let them know it's there and they'll come. And sure enough, they did. And, uh, and it was a tremendously successful show. We broke even in seven weeks. We won a ton That's of awards. Incredible. It was, it was wow. a wonderful experience. And at that point, that really solidified, like, okay, you know, you, you were successful as a junior guy, and now you're successful as the lead guy, you know, and that, that really cemented my, um, my role as a producer. And, and that, that really is what I had been doing primarily for the past 15, 16 years before sort of shifting my gears uh, towards um, The Fifth Beetle, which I envisioned from day one as, as a graphic novel and a film. So let's talk about that transition then. You've got this, uh, for lack of a better term, juggernaut of a production company. Uh, the, the list of shows on Broadway is ridiculous. Thank just you. Just saying. Uh, I looked at it and I just went, wow, and wow. And I just, you know, finally I just said, shut up and read. Uh, <clears throat> <laughs> Thanks. And then you, you say to yourself, time to get back to the Brian Epstein story. Yeah, I mean, essentially, you know, Raisin in the Sun, um, we were nominated for a bunch of Tonys that year. I mentioned mm -hmm. we won Best Actress, which I was super proud of. We were also nominated for Best Revival, which is a producer award. So I was, no I was nominated. I was a nominated producer. It was the first time I went to the Tonys as a nominee. Um, we lost. We lost to Shakespeare, so I didn't feel so bad. Um, but uh, but um, the reason I mention that is, uh, you know, because I'm of Indian origin, and at the time I was the, also the youngest producer on Broadway, and, um, you know, so a lot of people were looking at me literally as like, who's this brown kid and how did he crash our party, oh, you know? <laughs> and, um, and, and let me add, not in a racist way. Broadway is a very welcoming environment. But, but I was different. I was intriguing yeah. to people. And, um, and you know, so, so it was, people were paying a lot of attention to me. Like, what, you know, where did he come from and, and what's he going to do next? You know, and, as, and I wasn't obviously incredibly proud of Raisin in the Sun, but if you know the show or the, the play, it's, yeah. it's a classic piece of African-American literature. Um, you know, if you grow up in the United States, you probably study it in school. So it's a story that's been told. And I thought for my next piece, I want to tell a story that hasn't been told. I want to do something that's new and fresh. And I like to think that we did something fresh with Raisin by casting Sean Combs, but it was still a revival. So, so for my, ne my next thing, I wanted to do something new. And I realized as I thought about it that it's the Brian Epstein story. It's, it's the story that, that I'd been carrying with me for about 15 years at the time. It's a story that is largely unknown. And I, and I, had, I had probably at the time was the world's or, you know, I had become the world's leading Brian Epstein expert. I had this wealth of knowledge in my head, a lot of which are, are untold stories because they were told to me through interviews. And I thought, so I should tell this story. No one else has done it. 
Um, and, and why not, why not me? When I started, I was a kid with no experience, but now I had, had, had a resume and, and producing and credits under my belt and I had a good reputation. So I called back all those people like Sid Bernstein, who had, who had helped me along the way. And I said, I, you know, when I approached you, I was just looking for, for the stories and for inspiration. I wasn't planning on doing anything with it, but now I actually want to tell the story and I'd, I'd, I'd like your help and I'd like your blessing. And, and all, I'm happy to say all those people who I had become friends with over the years and said, that's great. You know, if anyone should tell it, it should be you. And how could we help? And that's kind of how I, how I got off to the races with it. Um, initially, I thought of it as a theater piece because that was the world that I knew. And I thought, you know, let me, let me stick within the world I knew. And, and Brian was actually a huge fan of theater. And so I thought, let me do this as a theatrical piece. But as I decided, you know, on, on, as I started structuring the piece, you know, I decided that I wanted to focus on the years that he spends with the Beatles. Um, you know, through exposition and dream sequences and backstory and, and et cetera, we, we learn about his childhood and what makes him tick, but we really focus on the years that he spends with the band. And, and so it starts in 1961, and it ends in 1967 when he dies. So in 1961 in Liverpool, you know, that's very dark, gray, drab, rainy, industrial. It's a little depressing. Um, I, I thought of it as being very black and white. And the story ends in 1967 London, which is the summer of, of love. It's the birth of the psychedelic era. You know, there's literally an event in the UK that year called a Technicolor Dream. So, you know, I viewed the arc of the Brian Epstein story as mirroring the arc of the movement from black and white to color. And now that may not make sense to anyone other than me, um, but in my creator head, you could see that I was thinking in terms of color palette. And I believe that the two media that most powerfully use color in their narrative are graphic novels and film. So from the very beginning, I thought this should be a graphic novel and it should be a film. And so I started developing you, it for both. So what did you know about graphic novels? I mean, other than you probably read a bunch of them. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, other than reading more than a bunch, reading a, a, an obscene amount, <laughs> I, I, nothing. I mean, I was just a huge fan, you know, but, but I've been a huge fan since, since literally childhood. I mean, I, I, I often uh, say that I probably learned to read by reading comics. My earliest memories of reading are reading um, um, Hergé, reading Tintin books with my mom. Um, you know, so, so comics are in, my, are in my blood, and I'm that sort of uber fanboy geek that, like, would always get the special editions of books that had like excerpts from the script and I would like compare the script to the final product. So I would say that I was familiar with the, with, with the, with how comics are created, like with comic book scripts and comic book yeah, artwork. Yeah. And, you know, I had read uh, Will Eisner's sequential art books and I had read Scott McCloud's understanding comics. And, you know, so I was, I was familiar with it as a, as a student and a fan. Um, but certainly I had never worked in the industry before. Right. But every, everybody knows if you read a book about swimming, and you dive off the deep end of the pool, you're in trouble. Yeah, I suppose so. You know, and I, I guess looking back at it, that is, that is, I guess, a little bit of what I did. Um, but, you know, I, I had learned over the years to always, like, you know, get advice from people who know better than you. And, you know, so I, I had friends in the comic book world, and I had, you know, gone to a lot of cons. And, and as, if any of you have been to a comic convention, you know that it's not hard to meet these people, writers and artists. They're, they're for the most part, pretty approachable um, you know, and, uh, and I really did. I, I dove in at the deep end, I guess. And, and, um, I guess I wasn't worried. I mean, may, maybe, maybe not unlike my experience calling folks about Brian Epstein, you know, I was, was too excited to be intimidated. You know, I just knew that this was going to work. I knew it had to work. Um, and I hope that my, you know, my passion for it was genuine enough that, 
that I could convey that and I would find somebody who was equally passionate. And that's exactly what happened. You know, I was a fan of Andrew Robinson's artwork. I, I didn't know him personally, um, but I thought he'd be great for this. And I reached out to him and, and he loved it. And, and Kyle Baker is a guy that I actually did know a tiny bit. I mean, we became friends through the fifth Beatle. Um, but, uh, but, you know, we, we, he's a New Yorker and, and also a, apart from being a practitioner in the, the field is also a, a fanboy. And so we had, you know, we'd been at parties together and I, I knew him a tiny bit enough to, to call him out of the blue and say, Hey, I'm working on a, a Beatles project about Brian Epstein and I'm going to get, you're a little bit older than me. And I'm going to guess that maybe you grew up with the Beatles and maybe grew up with those Beatles cartoons. And the sequence that I'd like you to do is sort of paying homage to those old Beatles cartoons and, and Kyle immediately said, send me the script, and, and he read it and loved it and <laughs> said he was in. Um, you know, so, so both, both, both artists I reached out to sort of cold and, and just knowing their talent because I was a fan and, and hoping that they would see my passion and like my script. And that's kind of how it all came to pass. And Andrew, um, you know, who did the majority of the book, Kyle did a wonderful uh, seven-page sequence in the, about, uh, about the time the band spends in the Philippines. But really, the 120-plus the other pages are Andrew Robinson's glorious artwork. And, um, you know, Andrew was a Beatles fan, but he read the script and immediately understood that, like, while, yes, it's a Beatles story, it's really not about the Beatles. It's really about this gay Jewish kid from Liverpool who was the ultimate outsider, the ultimate underdog, and went the distance in his chosen field. And he got that. He got that it was Brian's story, and that's what really inspired Andrew, which is immediately what inspired me. And so, so I knew that we were going to be on the same page with it. And, and that's kind of how it happened. And as I said, I was developing the film and the graphic novel at the same time. I, you know, most people assume that, like, you know, that the film was sort of an afterthought after the success of the book, but n nothing could be further from the truth. I, I, was, I had written a screenplay at about the same time I had written the graphic novel script. But what did happen was the graphic novel just took on a life of its own and, and just gained a lot of momentum. And it became very clear at some point that the graphic novel would happen first. And so we did shift our focus to getting that done first. And certainly in the wake of the success of the book, we shifted our focus then to the film. We said, now we've got all this momentum, let's get the film done. And there's no question that the success of the book had helped exponentially to get the film off the ground. But, um, but really, this is not one of those projects where like, we made a comic in the hopes of making a film. You know, I think that people who do that are usually setting themselves up to fail you know, I think the comic needs to survive on its own merits, and I'm a huge comic fan, and I respect the two media intensely, and, and I did not make a graphic novel hoping to make a film. No, but at one point the project yeah. be became multi, uh, a multi-project. Totally, you know, and, and yeah. I should say, even, even from the very beginning, you know, I, I thought of The Fifth Beetle you know, as a, as a, as an entity, you know, or as a mission, let's say, mm -hmm. you know, it wasn't a graphic yeah. novel. It wasn't a film. It's a mission. And, and its mission is to sing the unsung story of Brian Epstein, you know, to, to tell the world about this amazing man who is one of the great architects of, of 20th century pop culture. And most of us don't know anything about him. And outside from his accomplishments, in the world of pop culture, is it's, there is this incredible human story about, about the underdog who went the distance, you know, and, and his life in, has inspired me in so many ways, and I just suspect that it will inspire others in, in hopefully a, a, in tiny ways. And, well, maybe and in, it already in, has because of the overwhelming success of the graphic novel. Yeah, thank you. I mean, I, I believe it has, but but, you know, you know, it, it, it's not, you know, thinking of the fifth Beatle as something that, that is, is, 
you know, is, its mission is to, is to inspire people through Brian's life, then the fifth Beatle is also, every time I speak at a con, that's the fifth Beatle. You know, the Brian w- was, uh, was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame um, a few years, two years ago, and the Rock Hall called me and asked me to consult on, uh, on elements of that induction. And that was a huge thrill for me, and it, it didn't really have anything to do with, the, with the, the graphic novel or the film. It had to do with my experience and my, my, um, my, my knowledge about Brian. But to me, like, that was the fifth Beatle. Like, consulting for the Rock Hall, that mm-hmm. was also fulfilling the mission of the fifth Beatle. So, you know, and, and now there's, you know, now that we're getting the film off the ground, there's, there's some talk about, you know, revisit, reimagining it as, as a theatrical piece, you know, back to my initial thinking of it. And, um, and that so that to me question. is Fifth Beetle, you know, so, so, um, and I should say, Drew, you'll, 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 uh, you'll appreciate this, you know, when, when I was, um, was thinking of when I, you know, when I, I, I decided not to do it as a theater piece because I just couldn't think of it as theater. You know, I wanted to do it as theater initially because that's what I knew. But, you know, in terms of color palette and sort of the fantastic, you know, a lot of the dream sequences and some of the things I wanted to do with it didn't really feel like theater. It felt more like film and graphic novel. Subsequently, obviously, I've worked with Michael Mayer and Billy Joe and like and did this did American Idiot. And I was like, oh, now I can kind of see how we can do it. You know, I, I started working in, thea- in theater forms that are much more experimental and uh, and now I'm sort of cycling back around and like you know having worked with Michael Mayer on American Idiot for so long like you know Michael's a genius I can sort of see how maybe we could do this so um, so we'll see maybe but theaters next. Sure. Well, you also you also worked on two shows that are notorious for hitting movies first and then becoming Broadway successes, which is the producers and Hairspray were both movies. And sure. Broadway's, Broadway's kind of taken that turn now where we have had, you know, shows that have been successful like Big the Musical and Rocky and Ghost, soon to be the School of Rock. Pretty crazy, yeah. yeah. It seems to be an interesting transition point, at least to, to gather a way to tell the story in that medium. Yeah, although, you know, it's interesting with, um, with Hairspray and the producers, um, you know, both of those movies are really more cult movies. You know, movies like Big and Rocky are obviously like, you know, hugely successful, incredibly well-known movies, mm-hmm. whereas The Producers is, is, you know, prior to the theater piece, is really not one of Mel Brooks' more well-known films. I mean, obviously, people who are huge fans of Mel Brooks know The Producers, but people who are, you know, marginal fans, you know, know him better for Young Frankenstein or Blazing Saddles or Spaceballs or, you know, The Producers is not one of his better-known works. And, you know, Hairspray is, you know, is a, it's a crazy John Waters film, you know, if totally you, a cult you know, it's, movie, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's a cult movie, you know, yep. um, so it's, uh, you know, it's a, li- it's a little bit different, right? I like to think what we were doing there, but brought, you know, Hollywood is obviously like, you know, now, you know, mining its catalogs for film, you know, films like Ghost, as you, you pointed out, right. and, and the six su- and the success rate is, is questionable, you know, not, not all of them are successes, um, you know, Ghost uh, didn't do very well on Broadway. Um, and, I, and I'm not speaking about creative successes. I'm, I'm talking about financially. You know, it, 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 didn't, office, it, didn't, yeah. it didn't run very long. I'll be honest, I didn't see it, so I, I can't comment on what it was like creatively. It might have been a wonderful show. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but, you know, just the model of taking a, you know, a successful film and adapting it to Broadway um, it has not been proven to be a surefire way of getting a hit, I guess is what I'm, get, I'm, I'm getting oh, at. Oh, very true. Oh, absolutely. 
I don't, I don't think there's a model for a surefire hit on Broadway anymore. <laughs> you know, there really isn't. There's a few things you can, uh, you can, um, can do to, to, to uh, increase your chances, w- one of which is base it on source material that is already well-known and beloved. Right. Um, so, you know, so I can understand why things like Big and Ghost and Rocky um, might, might have a leg up because those are all, you know, shows that, that, um, that, have, that are beloved. And so, so there's immediately a fan base there that would care. Um, but uh, you know, but, you know what, doing, but even that is not a enough. Movie, a movie musical like that, ha- for me as as someone who's twenty three, I didn't know Big Big the movie. I did Big when I was that's in interesting. School, a yeah, that's a, that's a very interesting point. And it was a new thing. And doing American Idiot now, it was like I I saw fifteen year olds in the audience who were singing along to every song, and it was like we were giving it to that next generation in a new way. That's a beautiful that, thing. That yeah. Them. It is a beautiful thing, and thank you for that. <laughs> I mean, really, I, I, I said this to you offline earlier, but, um, you know, that it's such a demanding show. I have such intense respect for any actor who has ever been an American idiot. I mean, I couldn't do it, you know. It's just, I don't know where you get the stamina and the energy. to. I mean, it's just, it's grueling. It's, a, it's an incredibly demanding and challenging piece. I mean, it's so, so kudos to you. But it certainly opens up new generations to these things. I've never seen Rocky, to be honest. <laughs> Maybe I need to get with it. But you know, <laughs> it's funny. I'm, I'm probably showing my age a little bit, but I, you know, that didn't really occur to me. Didn't really occur to me. And Broadway, for such a long time, has been thought of as, uh, you know, putting it bluntly, an older older person's, you know, uh, form of entertainment. You know, one one uh, one old nickname for Broadway is the Great White Way. You know, which meant that Broadway is meant for older wealthy white american tourists you know and that certainly is no longer the case um but it, it wasn't always that way you know hedwig um has just done done a or, or is, is in the middle of an incredibly successful run on broadway um but when hedwig launched you know in the early 90s i think it was um or mid 90s maybe uh you know it when john cameron mitchell launched it at the, the jane street theater in downtown manhattan there's no way that show would have succeeded on broadway you know, and, and now, you know, the show about a transgender rock star, it actually doesn't even feel that edgy, you know, for Broadway, <laughs> you know, it, 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 there's, there's a place for it. And, and I mean that, I mean that with love, you know, I'm glad there's a place for it on oh, Broadway, no, but times you know, so much because I sat and watched, I, again, another one, I was way too young to know when it came out, sat and watched that with my 60 year old mother and it was normal, nothing. It was like sad. I cried my way through it. But uh, it was like nothing. I haven't, you know, nothing edgy that was yeah. shocking. Great. Yeah, show I mean, you know, Raisin in the Sun just came back to Broadway with Denzel Washington um, doing yeah. the lead role, and Denzel's amazing. He's a brilliant actor. Um, but to be quite frank, and, and I mean, absolutely no disrespect to the show. I was incredibly happy to see it back. It's an important piece that that everybody should see. But like the, when, when when Raisin came back to Broadway with Denzel in it. There was nothing really edgy about it. You know, when we launched it on Broadway with Sean Combs, it was like, you're crazy, African-Americans don't come to Broadway, Sean Combs can't act. When Denzel came back and did it, it was almost a no-brainer. It was like, oh, well, that's going to do well. It's Raisin in the Sun. It's Denzel. You know, and people forget that just a handful of years before that, people were telling me, like, Raisin in the Sun on Broadway, are you crazy? You know? (laughs) so and and again I say that I say that with love like that makes me very happy I'm not putting Broadway down for that I'm I'm, ra- I'm raising it up I'm incredibly pleased that shows like Hedwig and A Raisin in the Sun have a place 
You know, that's awesome. And now, now our goal as producers is to find out what is that next edgy thing? What is the next thing we could bring to Broadway that people will say, that's crazy, that'll never succeed? You know, like how do we now push the medium even further? And that to me is incredibly exciting. Mm-hmm. So you have a... <clears throat> I'm going I'm to push you back on track here first. <laughs> yeah, sorry. I know we're, we got no, off the fifth needle a little bit. We're but. out a little. So you got the book. You've, you've realized what you thought was your vision. And then the book wins an Eisner Award. Yeah. What, yeah, I mean, what, is, and, what does that mean what, to somebody who's produced this graphic novel really isn't a graphic novel producer who's, who's got some friends who are in the, uh, the, the, the business of, of, of doing these graphic novels, but this is, this is not your forte, and boom, up comes the Eisner. It was, I mean, it was incredibly overwhelming and, 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 and so surreal and, and just an, an intense dream come true. You know, as somebody who grew up reading comics, just the just attending the Eisner Awards was a great thrill. Much less attending as a nominee, much less winning. I mean, it was the whole thing was incredibly surreal. You know, when the book came out, we um, we all had a feeling that we had something special on our hands. You know, I, I I obviously am hugely passionate about the Brian Epstein story, and I believe it's inspiring, and I, I believed it would find an audience. Um, it's obviously Beatles related, which immediately uh, garners some degree of attention. And I knew that Andrew Robinson's artwork was absolutely right. stunning, and, and Kyle's as well. So did we believe that it would be successful? Yes, we did. But we all believed that it would find its audience eventually. Like, none of us believed that within, right out of the gate, it would do so well. And obviously, the awards are given to, to works that just came out that year. You know, it, it right. award shows honor works from the previous year. We never thought we would win any awards because we thought it would take more than a year to find our audience, you know? I mean, I remember the book came out right before Thanksgiving, and, um, and right before we broke for the holidays, uh, the publisher at Dark Horse, they said to me, you know, when we get back from the holidays, we should, um, we should sit down and talk about the New York Times charts and what we could do to maybe get on those charts, like what, what various marketing things can we do to increase sales, and how do, we, how do we maybe crack that chart? And I said, great, sounds like a good, good smart plan. We'll talk about it when we get back from the holidays. And I, um, I turned my phone off on Thursday because I wanted to just like, be off the grid. And, uh, and Friday is actually the day when, they announced, when the New York Times announced their charts. The charts you know, used to be printed on Sunday, and they, are, they come out in hard copy on, on, in the Sunday Times, but they, they are actually released online on Friday. And I got a call, I got a voicemail from Paul Levitz, who's the head of D.C., at the time and, uh, and had nothing to do with the fifth Beatle. He's just a friend. And he said, hey, you know, happy Thanksgiving and congratulations on the New York Times. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, and, and, and I found out that we had debuted at number five on the New York Times charts, surprising everyone, including the publisher. You know, we, we just, it was totally out of left field, um, which is incredibly gratifying because like, you know, just being blunt and honest, we did nothing to manipulate the charts. We didn't like try to do it. We just like, it was just entirely based on fans and people who were interested going out and actually buying the damn thing. So it was, a, it was a really, it was quite a thrill. And then within three weeks, we, we got all the way up to number one. It was amazing, but completely overwhelming, like to, to, to sell that well, to be nominated for these awards. You know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a fanboy geek and like, you know, Will Eisner and Harvey Kurtzman are, are heroes of mine. And to be attending the, the Eisners and attending the Harveys, I mean, it just, 
the whole thing was uh, was just so humbling. It was a really wonderful experience. So now you've got this wonderful entertainment conglomerate that pretty much encompasses anything you want it to whenever you want it to. <laughs> I don't, I don't, that's very kind of you. I, I don't quite think about it that way. But, uh, well, but you I, know I, what? It, I'm true. looking no, at it and going, going, yeah, you've, you've, that's what it is. And you've got this wonderful story that uh, the graphics com- graphic community looks at and goes, yeah, this is well done. And now the thought that started some of this a while back was, yeah, this could be a movie, and now it's going to be. Yeah, so, you know, I, I had written the screenplay, and I had the screenplay, that, and, and one very key, key development is, is over, the, over the past decade as I've been working on it, was I'd been slowly, uh, you know, working on, on getting the, uh, the blessing of the Beatles, and we finally did that, and we got them to approve the, the script, and, uh, and that paved the way to allow me to do a deal for Beatles music rights. And um, this is, I mean, if you, if you just look at the dates, you'll see that, like, we, we secured the rights to Beatles music shortly before the graphic novel even came out. So mm-hmm. it was not in the wake of the book success that we got the music rights. So the film had been sort of chugging along and had secured one key development in, in music rights. You know, the Beatles had never before approved a project about their history. Um, if you look at other Beatles films like Backbeat or Nowhere Boy, you'll see that there's, um, you know, uh, no disrespect to those films, but there's no Beatles music in those films, and that's because the band had never approved a script before. So it was a huge coup that we pulled off there. Um, and, uh, but, and then, you know, also to top, in addition to that, to have the book be incredibly successful. And, you know, while it's certainly not a superhero book, you know, the, the adapting comic books into film is obviously such a de rigueur thing this, these days on Broadway. So um, to be able to say, like, hey, not only is it a Beatles story and we have music rights and the band has approved the thing, but it's also based on an international, internationally best-selling comic book. You know, um, the, the book at this point had done well, not just in the U.S., but in, in Italy, Japan, uh, Europe, uh, France, uh, Portugal. It's been released in a number of other foreign languages. And, and so, you know, these are the kind of things that, that, uh, that gets Hollywood excited for better. You know, that might be silly, but, but it is what it is. You know, the, those are the things that, that excite Hollywood players. And, um, and I'm excited to say that, like, people started coming to us. You know, the, the financier that we just announced, I Am Global, is financing the film. I never pitched them. They called me. They said, we've been tracking this project, and we just opened a division that's looking to do music films, and we'd like to read your script, and are you looking for a financier? And the truth was, I was like, I'm not. Like, I, I will in a, in a handful of months. But then they said, we'd like an early read. And, you know, they came to us. And, and it's, wow. it's, it's, it's been a really, really wonderful thing. And, and I should say, they came to us after a tremendous amount of hard work, you know. And that's mm-hmm. exactly what happened with the book as well. Andrew Robinson and I started making the thing independently. And we had, no, we had no designs on releasing it independently, but we thought we would, we would make it on our own and then take it to a publisher. You know, we, we knew that, like, you know, that, that it was special and that we would find a publisher, but we thought we'd finish it first, and then we'd take it to a publisher. Word got out that we were doing it. Um, you know, people had seen a few of Andrew's artwork. Andrew's artwork was gorgeous. And, um, and while I had never written a graphic novel before, I had some notoriety in, the, in, in entertainment because of my successes in theater. And, um, and the publishers started calling us. You know, I was getting calls from all the major comic book publishers saying, we heard you're doing this Beatles thing, and are you looking for a publisher? And I wasn't playing hardball. I just was honest. I said, actually, I'm not. 
you know, and they said, well, we'd love to take an early read. And it was, you know, this is, a, this is how the project has fallen into place. But, but I, 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 I want to be, be very clear that it, was, it hasn't been all like easy and a dream come true. It's taken a lot of incredibly hard work and a lot of like Andrew Robinson, an amazing artist, working for Peanuts, you know, doing it independently, uh, you know, and, and just putting a lot of passion into it. It's um, an overnight in, in order to get that thing. It's like, you know, the overnight success that we've been working on for a decade, you know? Exactly. So, exactly. you know. So what does is, what is the movie look like right now? Uh, yeah, so so I mentioned we've got the music rights, um, which is incredibly exciting. We've got a financier in I Am Global. Um, Simon Cowell, the music and television impresario, is, has joined as a producing partner. Um, he's been incredible, you know, and, and one of his major um, sort of mandates within his company is, is to, to break into film. And he has a number of films in development, of which Fifth Beetle is one. And um, he's a longtime admirer of Brian Epstein, so he also is coming from a place of passion with it, which has been wonderful. He's been a great partner to us. And um, so that's exciting. And we are out to directors. So we're, um, we're in conversations with a number of film directors. And we're hoping that by the end of the year, we'll be able to announce our director with an eye to shoot sometime early uh, 2016. And um, there's nothing to suggest that, uh, that we won't be on track for that. Um, although, you know, I've learned in Hollywood, nothing is for certain. Um, but uh, but it, it seems that we're, uh, we're in, in good shape for that. We're getting a lot of interest. Um, as you can imagine, as I said, with music rights, with the book, with uh, with the fact it's Beatles related, um, with the team that we've put together, we're we're getting a lot of um, a lot of Hollywood and UK industry, UK film industry players, uh, very excited about it. So um, so with with a little bit of luck and fingers crossed, we should be uh, we should have news for you soon on the director front. I was, I, um, you know, it's it's just a damn shame you couldn't get things to move. Seriously. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's it's taken a while. I got to tell you. Um, you know, even though it seems like an overnight success uh, publicly, like all my friends have heard me talking about this thing for like 15 years, and it was just so gratifying to have the book out, so I could tell all my friends who who, who I, I'm wondering, like, were they beginning to think that I was full of it? You know, every you know, <laughs> it's like, and I was like, see, I was serious all these years that I said I was making this comic book. Um, so uh, so yeah, it's it's been very very gratifying. Hey Vivek, can can we have you back? I mean, you know. It's oh my gosh! Anytime. Talk, man. <laughs> anytime. This, this, this is yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm sure Drew is sitting at her computer, going, "Is he hiring?" But <laughs> uh, not yet. But we will be. Please keep in touch. Oh my gosh! Uh, my, my inner child is 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 jumping for joy. Right on. <laughs> well, as I said, if you can do American Idiot, you can do anything. You're not lying. <laughs> it's, it's a it's a hard role. It is a hard. It is a hard. That is that show. Every single role, every single ensemble piece is is a challenge. So I really do. I believe anybody who can act in that show, you can do anything. Really. But, but seriously, as things move forward with the project, as you have other projects going on, you know, don't hesitate to come back to the show, and and we'd love to have you talk about it. Well, I would love that. I'm, I'm sure, as you can tell, I love talking, and I love talking about this. So be careful what you offer. No, no, I will no. be back. <laughs> You've got to get out of jail free card with us. It's starting right now. Seriously. Thank you. That's kind of you. So listen, uh, we've taken up almost an hour of your time tonight. Thank you so much for joining us. No, I've enjoyed it. And if I could just say uh, one last thing, if any Absolutely. one of your audience is, um, is keen to, to keep abreast of breaking news for us, um, please follow us. We're on social media. We're on Facebook. 
Um, you know, I, you can also friend me personally. I'm on Facebook personally. Um, we're also on Twitter at, at Fifth Beetle and at Vivek J. Tawari. And I love keeping in touch with people who are interested in what we're doing. So please, uh, please follow us and, and, uh, and keep your eyes out for, um, for Fifth Beetle news. And, and we, all of we, those we links will be, all of them. Yep, there you go. will be in the post. Awesome. Thank you so much. No, thank you, my friend. This is this has been a long time getting to this point, and <laughs> looking forward. I'm glad to we did. Thank them. you for for being persistent with me and patient. So. <laughs> thank you so much, and and have a wonderful evening. Thanks, guys. You as well. Thanks so much Bye. for having me. Take care. Bye, guys. Bye. That was wow. <laughs> that was too cool. I'm yeah, Adam I, on Facebook right now. I, I did that already. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of Facebook, and to ease us slowly into the news. I wasn't sure we were going to get that tonight. <laughs> I didn't even have to text her or anything. Wow, She's actually that's here. Awesome. You're fucking welcome. <laughs> go, go ahead. You're on. All right, so this is actually really old news. It's from back in 2013. Okay, that is like really old news. Really old news, but it's really cool. So okay. do you guys remember my good friend Watson, the computer who won Jeopardy that time? I do. My good friend Watson, for those of you who don't know, learns... On his own. He's AI. And um, part of how he learns is that his overlords load things like, say, Wikipedia into him. Well, I don't know if it's him. Part of how Watson learns is that is by, is through the internet. And Watson's creators decided uh, that part of his learning because they wanted to develop his natural speech um, and make it less formal. So they thought, oh, I know how we can teach him slang. Let's upload Urban Dictionary. Oh, my God. (laughs) And then Watson learned how to swear. And apparently Watson could not differentiate polite speech from swearing. (laughs) And when he started answering queries with bullshit instead of false, they decided to take Urban Dictionary out. That's probably a wise choice in a lot of respects. So you're welcome, world. When you teach computers to swear, they don't stop. They don't understand the social... Niceties. Yep. And I learned that today thanks to Facebook, which is why that has anything to do with Facebook and okay. why it's in the news tonight. The end. <laughs> yeah, but you also had something else you wanted to talk about tonight. I did. I also learned this through Facebook, but it's much more timely. Recent. <laughs> <laughs> of course, I said that, and now I'm going to say, remember that movie Halloween Town from when we were kids? Only the best horror movie I've ever seen in my life. Best movie ever. Um, It's up there with Hocus Pocus as one of those movies that you have to watch every Halloween. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Except the difference is you have to watch all four of them. Yes, you have to watch Halloween Town 1 through 50 gazillion. 
It's the land before time of Halloween movies. Yeah. <laughs> land before Halloween time, 16. I'm an oil select. College is my personal favorite. I prefer Halloween Town High myself. <laughs> That's just me. That's one person's opinion. Anyway, so the town where Halloween Town was filmed, apparently they enjoyed the experience of having Halloween Town filmed there so much that now every year for the entire month of October, they turn their town back into Halloween Town. Um, it's St. Helens, Oregon. And it, I pulled the article that's linked uh, from the St. Helens Chronicle out and about section. <laughs> so the linked article has the whole list of, um, of Halloween and scary themed events for the month of October. Highlights include... The Hot Rod and Haunted Hearse Cruise Inn. Uh, what was the other one I thought? Don't forget the Dark and Dank Disco at the Dockside dark Restaurant. Disco, yep. <laughs> and my favorite, which is figured prominently probably because the list is in the Chronicle, but the Chronicle Lil Spooks Parade. <laughs> for the small children's. And I'm thinking that we need to get a GoFundMe to send Sci-Fi Saturday Night down there. Yeah, even if it's just Drew and Zombarian, we will Especially make... Especially if it's just Drew and Zombarian. <gasps> we will make the best road trip YouTube video you have we ever seen that. if you send us to St. Helens. If you want this, Halloween. you go on our Facebook, you demand it. Yep. <laughs> and people have spoken we will go and we will lip sync and we will probably get stopped by the cops at least once we will do hardcore acting on the way of quotes from the movies yep we'll have a bag that'll eat things there, there, will, there will be a video that you can play as you're watching Halloween Town that has our commentary on it if you watch Halloween Town, and we'll make an album like Pink Floyd, that if yeah. you see it while you're watching Halloween Town, it'll be like a totally different experience. <laughs> We're making Ooh, a lot of promises. The reading of Halloween Town, it'll be epic. We're making a lot of promises about Halloween Town right now. You know what? I'm I'm willing to make them all happen. Okay, so here's here's the worst news of the week. <gasps> Ready for this? No. Plot spoilers were leaked for Transformers 5, what? and nobody cares. Was there a Transformers 4? There was, started starring Mark Wahlberg. Oh, I saw that one. I thought that was the first one. <laughs> no, that was number four. Uh-oh. And, and, and evidently there's going to be a number five. Wahlberg shot his mouth off about it, and nobody seems to care. It's because oh, Ted 2 was Mark. so good. And now he can't, can he get any better? We know it's not going to be funny. <laughs> oh, Marky Mark. Marky Mark and Michael Bay together again. Why do we care? <clears throat> They're going to space. Yeah, they? they are. <laughs> you know what I would love That's... to see? A Transformers movie. Do you remember those video games where they fought space Nazis? No. I want yeah. that. There was, I was like Call of Duty space Nazi. 
I'm not yeah. sure what it was called. I want to see Transformers fight space zombie Nazis. That's what I want. <laughs> Everything is better with things. space zombie Nazis. <laughs> That's what I've always said. I mean, kind of especially the if, yeah. if there's space zombie Nazi werewolves. That's a lot, but I'd watch that. Yeah. If I'd Iron Sky too. was done with, with robots. Halloween Town 6, space zombie... Apocalypse. Nazi werewolves Apocalypse, in, yeah. in bondage. <laughs> no, that makes it not appropriate for no, it's a kids the Disney movie. Channel Come on. audience. Does it have to be a kids movie? Yes. Mark Wahlberg's in it. Oh, yeah, it kind of does then. <laughs> Mark, Wahlberg. Mark Wahlberg needs to understand the script dome. <laughs> as, as long as Megan Fox isn't in it, it's almost watchable, but... No, no. Anything with Marky no. Mark in it is watchable. Come <laughs> on. Bear. Oh, man. You, you know, I, I mean, I hate to say it, but Vivek kind of uh, blew us out of the water here, man. Uh, it was I, a great interview. It's true. Did I just use up all of our news time on a three-year-old story about a robot? Pretty much, yeah. There's a robot. <laughs> oh, come on. We can get through a ton of stories in the amount of time we have left. We've got we've got a whole four minutes. All right. Go, uh, go Java. Go. Let's I'll do, do mine. It quickly. Go ahead. Sure. Um, Arrow season four trailer came out. Guess what? He's going to be back in a hood. Oh, Everybody no way. He's worried that, that season four was just going to be about a responsible business owner. Nope. There's arrows coming. So what? all of you people who had qualms about season four, now you now look who has egg on their face. Oh, now look who has arrows on their face. Now look I, who has a hoodie over their face. I used to be a responsible businessman like you, and I took an arrow to the face. <laughs> Monty Python is putting out a box set for their re 40th year re-release of Monty Python and the Quest of the Holy Grail that includes a catapult. As well as... Like a whole one? No, like a little... Like the box is a catapult. So that it's you can a little practice catapult, flinging your DVDs like into the, the DVD player from across the room. That's a YouTube cool video I'd watch. You can do that. Yeah, absolutely. You can shoot that. cows at the English knights. <laughs> yes. As you insult them. <sighs> I rushed to throw together some theater and acting related news. <laughs> Harry it's Potter is hitting the London stage as a prequel. That's all I know about it. You're welcome. And The Walking Dead just announced that they're doing an open call for child casting. Oh, for do we have to seven have, year olds and twelve year olds. Do we have to have range. kids zombies? Seriously? I don't know if they're looking for zombies, but if you're looking for a date <laughs> and you're at New York Comic Con, you can win a date with one of the stars from The Walking Dead, the guy who is Daryl Dixon, uh, who I guess is described as a uh, zombie-killing badass redneck who everybody loves, but that sounds like conflicting ideals to me. No, Daryl Dixon uh, is my hero. Daryl is... i got to be honest, I'm from the Midwest, and there's an awful lot of Daryl love here from the ladies... 
I don't understand it. I don't understand it. I watched The Walking I mean, Dead. Kind of like old. a. He's kind of like one of those bad boys with a heart of gold. I get that, but man, there's just a lot of Daryl love here. Wow. You know what? There's a lot of Daryl love here in our house too. I almost said something else, but <laughs> here in your heart. Yeah, yeah, in my heart. That's exactly. That's I would exactly what I was going to say. I'd be lying if I said I didn't have a Daryl Dixon sweater that has the angel wings on the back and his initials on the front that my boyfriend considers to be my Danny DeVito sweater. But what I would say is I watched this show when I was really sick and I took no input from it. And I really liked Shane. And I guess I picked wrong. Why are you? Why do you hate fun? <laughs> why do you hate joy also um brother zombrarian is going to be at new york comic-con and now i think that instead of sending us to halloween town this year we should send us to halloween town next year this year we should get him as many entries into the date daryl dixon Dixon <laughs> as possible. <laughs> I, I want my brother on a date with Daryl Dixon. I want it to happen. <laughs> are you with us still? I don't know if she is or not. Uh, she's working. I, no. can, I can hear you. It just takes a little longer for me to unmute myself. Okay, because uh, I just realized that Sarah's not here to do her thing. Right, you know, because we're getting very near the end, and I oh, want to. Oh, Jesus, uh, that thing. Yeah, that's. <laughs> Son of a whore. I'll do the coming up calendar. Yeah, you that can... thing. That's, oh, that's, oh, that's totally what Sarah does. I, I have the coming up calendar up, though, and there's really nothing on the coming up calendar. That's the, last time I I'll do the coming up calendar. <laughs> Dick move. Wait, 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 I'll channel Sarah. Rude. There we go. Wait, 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 you know what? I can do the whole outro. No, right I, I, can, I can totally do it. I got it up here right now. Oh, I want to do it. Oh, what? No. Okay. All right. You know what? Let's let Zombrarian do it. And then you guys can do it. No, you're we'll going to do it. the two. Okay. So coming up, we have guests and they're going to be awesome. Oh and my stuff. God, you suck at this. And tonight, as you're listening to this, you should feel ashamed if you were not at GraniteCon with us, but you still have your chance to come tomorrow. And um, Sci-Fi Saturday Night is the official podcast of a bunch of stuff. And okay, stop. Sci-Fi Saturday Night is the official podcast of Boston Comic Con, GraniteCon, Rhode Island Comic Con, BooksandBooze.com, and ComicArtHouse.com. Visit ComicArtHouse.com to annoy Bob. No, just kidding. I love Bob. Visit ComicArtHouse.com for the best deals on original art from dozens of your favorite artists. Tonight's outro music provided by Lawrence Made Me Cry. Check out more of their soft beats on LawrenceMadeMeCry.com. Tonight's intro music provided by Rob Watts. Find more of his surrealist creations at RobWattsOnline.com. Don't? You know, you know, there's pictures all over Facebook of Bob wearing a tie now, and, and that's kind of <laughs> really disconcerting. <laughs> what? That's not true. I don't oh, believe it. Oh, it's totally true. I don't it believe it. Totally true. You're a liar. 
I want to thank our guest, uh, Vivek Tiwari. Holy crap. This guy is just doing some amazing stuff, and we're having him back. I want to thank the cast for joining us tonight. From the Revere Time Vortex, the sweetheart of the soundboard, Kriana, who's working in the background, and our woman of words, Zombrian. Thank you so much, ladies. Yeah, yeah. Bite me. Don't that, was for exactly, the that was exactly what I said for the outro. Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> what, what is it the Fender says? Screw you, meat bags. <laughs> Back from the shadows and into the frozen yogurt again. Thank you, Java. So long, everyone. From the mausoleum. Thank you, Drew. Always good to have you with us. Absolutely. Do- donate for the date. Hashtag. <laughs> this is Dome saying Terry and Jeannie. Shared pain is lessened. Shared joy increased. Thus do we all refute entropy. Good night, everyone. Get out, everybody!